0: Okay, so um, it is really my honor to next uh, introduce my co-host of this meeting, who is Dr. Chip Scooley, And um, he's gonna talk to us today about COVID interactions with other viruses. Um, Dr. Scully is um, a longstanding HIV researcher, educator, and clinician uh, in HIV medicine. He is a professor at UCSD in the Division of Infectious Diseases, um, and after a a very long um, uh, uh, history as the head of the Division of HIV, uh, sorry, head of the Division of Infectious Disease at the University of Colorado. Um, he was at one point the chair of our AIDS clinical trials group funded by NIAID um, and has been chair of multiple study sections, DHHS task forces, um, and in 2005 joined UCSD and is really well known not only for all his research but as a recently, I think, retiring but uh, editor of the um, in chief of clinical infectious diseases. So thank you so much for talking to us about COVID-19 and other viruses.
1: Thanks very much, Monica. It's great to be with everybody today uh, on this foggy day in San Diego, which is unusual, uh, but I'm looking forward to um, having a chance to spend the rest of the day with you. Uh, Today, uh, I'm going to um, talk uh, primarily about the interactions between um, uh, HIV uh, and um, SARS-CoV-2, uh, but uh, I want to make. I'll also make a few comments about how the um, the uh, uh, virus is interacting with other viruses in our uh, virome because it really has had a big impact on many aspects of what we do. Um, Am I in the correct uh, mode Doctor, here?
0: Yes, Dr. Scully, if you can uh, switch the displays.
1: I was asking, okay. Yeah, perfect. perfect. All right. So here are my disclosures. And I will move now to talk about learning objectives or to talk about the potential biological and clinical interactions between uh, SARS-CoV-2 and HIV and talk about um, some of the uses of COVID drugs and vaccines in the HIV-infected population uh, with most of this actually uh, coming uh, in the next talk from Raj Gandhi, who will be talking about uh, the use of these agents in the general population, which parallels very much uh, the HIV-infected population. We've all been on the roller coaster of, of COVID in uh, the US and around the world. We've now unfortunately had three quarters of a million deaths uh, from uh, COVID uh, in the US alone uh, and uh, over 5 million around the world. Uh, I'll be talking today in kind of two sections, first about the interaction between, uh, in, in terms of the HIV COVID interactions, and the interactions at the individual level, and then I'll talk about some of the societal impacts that COVID has had that have complicated care for people with HIV infection uh, and other um, uh, medical illnesses that we all care for. So there are a lot of reasons that one might think that uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 would be uh, a real issue from the standpoint of uh, HIV, uh, including immunodeficiency and and other things which we'll talk about. Uh, And I'll start by saying uh, it's um, surprising in in many ways um, that although there is some increased morbidity and mortality, it's not any more striking uh, than it actually has turned out to be. Uh, The reasons that one might think about uh, COVID uh, being a particular problem in HIV infected people, uh, when you think about the pathogenesis of uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection, uh, we have uh, an early period of uh, virus host interaction in which uh, SARS-CoV-2 turns off the innate immune response, grows rapidly in the lungs, and then quickly explodes uh, into the upper uh, respiratory tree uh, and Uh, as the adaptive immune response tries to gain control, which it does in most people. In others, uh, uh, regulation of the immune response leads to a progressive downhill course of inflammation in the lungs and systemically and death. HIV is characterized uh, by uh, both um, a um, uh, cellular immune deficiency, uh, particularly in people with advanced disease and immune activation and dysregulation, even in people with uh, well-controlled uh, HIV infection uh, on long-standing antiretroviral therapy, and these two uh, pathogenic interactions uh, could well have spelled quite a bit of mischief in terms of what happens clinically. But let's see what actually happens clinically. And first, address whether people uh, with HIV uh, are they at risk for more severe outcomes uh, if they become infected with SARS-CoV-2. Uh, There have been a number of studies that have tried to look at this, and I'll start by saying the studies are very complex to uh, put your arms around because they are done at different times in different populations with different underlying comorbidities and different uh, SARS-CoV-2 strains circulating in the community at the time. So I'll try to uh, illustrate uh, a few of these studies to give you a sense of kind of where I think the needle uh, has, has finally fallen. One of the first studies uh, to look at this uh, was one that was uh, performed um, in New York that uh, took advantage of two large databases uh, that the New York City Department of Health had uh, assembled. One was uh, uh, the their HIV surveillance registry and the other was their surveillance system for uh, COVID-19 uh, that they linked in the early um, uh, explosion of COVID uh, in New York City uh, where they had uh, 200,000 COVID cases, uh, and of these, about 2,000 uh, were people living with HIV, and you can see a couple of things when they, when you begin to look at the subsets of these uh, populations. Uh, people uh, who um, had uh, HIV, as you might expect, uh, were more likely to be male uh, than those who um, uh, did not have HIV. Uh, you can see, again, that the patients with both HIV and with COVID um, Uh, and particularly with HIV uh, were disproportionately represented by those uh, in um, disadvantaged groups uh, economically and in people with underlying medical conditions compared to people who had COVID without HIV. These sorts of of imbalances uh, make it complicated. And as I mentioned before, in trying to uh, sort out morbidity and mortality across the two uh, compartments. In this study, um, which was, very well done in terms of of capturing the data. uh, Another very strong feature of it was that the two populations were studied contemporaneously. In other words, uh, they gathered uh, all of this data at the same time so that there aren't uh, differences in time between the people with HIV and coronavirus uh, and people with coronavirus alone. To make a long story short, there was no evidence that people with HIV were more likely uh, to become infected with SARS-CoV-2 in New York during this first wave. Uh, about 1.5% of the New York population uh, became infected with COVID. uh, And uh, only 1% of the HIV infected population in New York City uh, developed COVID. However, when one looks at what happens to those people who um, uh, were HIV infected and got COVID as well, they were more likely uh, to end up in the hospital. Uh, They were more likely to end up in the ICU. Uh, and they were more likely uh, to die of their infection in this particular um, run through. Now, uh, one thing that's, uh, as I've already uh, uh, said, is that although there was no more COVID in people with HIV, more people became ill, but there were many more underlying disease conditions in people with, uh, with HIV uh, than without HIV, which was one of the things that uh, seemed to be driving this because the same risk factors that we see uh, in other um, uh, diseases uh, in other patient populations uh, also drove morbidity in the HIV COVID uh, co-infected population. That was uh, further underscored in another very nice study done um, shortly thereafter. It was a registry of patients that uh, was uh, sponsored by the University of Missouri and uh, in which the Infectious Disease Society played a role. Uh, people with, uh, uh, who had, uh, were caring for patients with uh, HIV who developed COVID were uh, asked to participate and provide um, information, case report forms about these uh, patients uh, that they were caring for. And they gathered almost 300 people uh, with uh, uh, HIV uh, and COVID. Uh, this study uh, did not have an HIV-uninfected uh, population to uh, compare, uh, and it was uh, clearly um, one that uh, was um, overrepresented by people in the hospital just because of the nature of the of the um, of the uh, sampling uh, uh, approach. Uh, but what you can see is that uh, in uh, in general, uh, there was a the, the same sorts of trends uh, that one sees um, in terms of age. Uh, we're seeing uh, in this uh, population of, uh, of patients with more older patients in the HIV population getting into more trouble in terms of hospitalization. Uh, and uh, it, it really isn't until you get to, um, Uh, When you start looking at uh, CD4 cell counts, you can see that there also is a trend that people with lower CD4 cell counts were more likely to be hospitalized than those with higher CD4 cell counts. Because the large population of people in the US uh, were uh, virally suppressed, uh, there really was uh, only a a modest difference here and in other populations, uh, this is less less, uh, evident as well. But in t- uh, people with more advanced HIV infection, may be more likely to get into more trouble uh, than people with less advanced uh, HIV infection. But again, one might expect a um, a um, coalescence of risk factors in groups of people who are having trouble connecting with the healthcare system to get uh, suppressed with HIV uh, uh, infection and to uh, become um, uh, to, to re- re- uh, result in a rising CD4 cell count. Uh, this is uh, another uh, bit of data from that same study, uh, again, making the point about the CD4 cells uh, and also making the point that uh, these underlying cofactors uh, that in, uh, play a role in the um, other populations that we talk about, also are very important here. Uh, and again, you can see the same thing is true with uh, the more comorbidities you accumulate, the more likely you are to get into trouble with uh, three and a half mole. Old greater chance of uh, being hospitalized if you've got three or more comorbidities. Uh, and then looking at severe outcome, and this is ICU admission, uh, uh, intubation, or death, the same trends are evident as well. And uh, as well uh, as in the non HIV infected populations, hypertension, chronic lung disease uh, uh, were seen here. And uh, as in the other uh, analyses, low CD4 cell count played a role as well. And these are just the Kaplan-Meier plots that, uh, that go with that. And again, you can see here that uh, when you look at ICU survival, uh, free survival, uh, people with higher CD4 cell counts uh, do better. And uh, in terms of overall survival, uh, there's a trend in the same direction. When one looks at the population level, uh, again moving back uh, away from just uh, case reports of mainly hospitalized patients, this is a large study reported uh, in the um, in Lancet HIV uh, from the UK, uh, looking at a uh, primary care uh, database and people over the age of eighteen uh, that was then segregated into those with and without HIV uh, with. Uh, COVID-related death being the the major endpoint, and they were able to uh, look at 17 million people on this database, and I guess thanks in part to Bojo, 27,000 of them uh, were uh, HIV-infected and uh, also um, uh, were uh, studied uh, for COVID. Uh, When one looks at uh, adjustment for age uh, and sex and index of multiple deprivation, in other words, uh, connectivity to the healthcare system and, and other societal factors, uh, and ethnicity and comorbidities, uh, some of the things that uh, we're talking about begin to shake out. So looking at crude risk of death, uh, there really is, uh, things are really pretty well, uh, pretty well even. Uh, but when you start looking at some of these comorbidities, you can see that the hazard ratio and the uh, HIV infected population, Uh, rises. And there are more of these cofactors in in the HIV infected population than the uninfected population. And if you look at this population, the hazard ratio of of death in the HIV infected population uh, over this period of time compared to the non-infected HIV, uh, non-HIV infected population in the UK in these primary care practices, you can see that there was a disproportionate increase uh, of about Fifty percent among the HIV-infected population uh, taking all comers. And finally, we'll uh, looking at one of the resource-limited settings. Uh, this one a study in South Africa uh, that uh, looked at people who were cared for in the uh, public sector, in other words, the uh, South African healthcare system, uh, who had been seen at least uh, once uh, since uh, 2017. Uh, looking at those uh, with uh, HIV, uh, with COVID, uh, and those hospitalized with COVID, and then uh, calculating the mortality ratios for COVID with and without HIV. Um, the data they generated were quite interesting as well. They were able to look at 3 million patients, uh, and of those, 20,000 uh, had uh, COVID and with 600 deaths. And HIV uh, was associated with uh, COVID mortality uh, with about a Twofold fold increase compared to non-HIV-infected um, populations. And it was similar in the South African study across uh, all strata of viral loads and immunosuppression, uh, except at the extreme. Uh, another uh, factor that uh, was, was also noted uh, was that um, people with um, uh, prior tuberculosis compared to those without prior tuberculosis had a further increase in the hazard ratio uh, and uh, when one looked at the overall association uh, with with death, again, as I said, uh, depending on how you uh, factor in the comorbidities, a, about a twofold increase in the HIV infected population. And here again is a um, uh, a plot that shows some of the uh, risk factors in the uh, HIV infected population. Uh, this is the HIV population I mentioned uh, in general, a little bit over twofold. Uh, prior to tuberculosis, a bad prognostic feature uh, in this, and again, age across the board in the South African experience uh, as well, and uh, gender. Now, to to final it to to finish this uh, this uh, uh, issue with um, CD four cell counts again in South Africa, there was a trend uh, toward a um, increased uh, morbidity and uh, and mortality. Uh, as the um, CD4 cell count declined. So although many of the large population-based studies in which many people with HIV infection are well controlled in the West, don't show big changes in morbidity and mortality in places where there are a larger number of people with lower CD4 cell counts, we begin to see differences uh, in how people do when they uh, are infected with SARS-CoV-2. So to summarize, um, there's no evidence that people with HIV are more likely are with are more likely to get COVID uh, when the uh, when COVID rolls through the population, uh, but they are more likely to disproportionately share societal risk that may place them at risk uh, for getting COVID in terms of of, of jobs and, uh, and living conditions. Uh, there is some evidence uh, that even after adjusting for underlying risk factors, uh, HIV uh, adds uh, to the more comor- uh, to the uh, morbidity of COVID. Uh, there are more risk factors in general uh, in people with HIV pushing toward severe COVID than in the general population, non-HIV-infected population. And there is a trend as your CD4 cell count declines to get into more trouble. Now let's uh, ask about vaccination. Uh, I'll be quick here because the data are emerging and uh, 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 I think what's more important uh, than whether they um, respond uh, in an equivalent fashion, is that they respond generally reasonably well, and there is no reason at all for anyone with HIV infection not to be vaccinated. Uh, Many of the studies that have been done suffer from problems with um, comparability of uh, which vaccines were given to uh, the HIV-infected population analyzed compared to the non-HIV-infected population, uh, age discrepancies, and so forth. And I'm not gonna spend a lot of time running through each of them, but I'll just show you some data, top-line data from two of them. This is a preprint uh, from Zabrina uh, Brum in uh, uh, British Columbia uh, looking at uh, about 250 people with HIV infection and what are called controls, but these are really healthcare workers who were vaccinated actually with a different vaccine. Uh, but to make a long story short, um, if you look at um, things that were um, uh, that detracted from uh, response, uh, One was if if they were vaccinated with an adovirus vaccine compared to mRNA as we'll discuss later. uh, Chronic underlying conditions uh, resulted in uh, lower responsivity to to vaccination as did age, as in the HIV uninfected population. But when you look at the overall population, um, red is after dose one and blue is after dose two, even across the whole CD4 cell spectrum, by the time you boost, uh, you begin to get reasonably good titers uh, in uh, in most people who are HIV infected. Um, so that uh, what one can can say is that um, it's very worth uh, vaccinating people with HIV infection when one looks at uh, these results immun- uh, immunologically. Unfortunately, we don't have good long-term studies about how this translates into protection from disease in the HIV infected population per se, but these types of immune immune responses do in the general population and the overall population, um, uh, including HIV and uh, HIV uninfected populations uh, do make a difference uh, in terms of uh, morbidity mortality. Uh, And in the same study, in in a different study uh, from Hopkins uh, with a very small number, this one actually uh, well controlled, uh, between the uh, HIV-infected and uninfected population. I just want to make one point about cellular immunity. Uh, People with uh, HIV infection have slightly lower cellular responses, but it's just as broad. And these responses are really quite important, I think, in decreasing uh, morbidity and mortality. The most important point I want to make today about vaccines, though, is whether you are HIV-infected or not, uh, coronavirus vaccine immunity and coronavirus immunity in general is fleeting. Uh, This is a study published yesterday in Science that looked at three quarters of a million US veterans and looked at the uh, longevity of protection uh, with the three vaccines used in the US. And you can see that, as we've seen in other studies, uh, decay of protection from infection with the Janssen vaccine uh, is uh, fastest, uh, followed by the uh, Pfizer vaccine, followed by the Moderna vaccine, uh, I'm not gonna go into other uh, data from this study, but I encourage you to look at this paper. It's a very nice paper. Uh, the same trends are seen in terms of the vac- each of these vaccines with uh, death uh, and uh, SARS-CoV morbidity. And when one looks at the death rate uh, in these um, in these um, uh, veterans, even those who have breakthrough infections have an impact on their death rate. So uh, please, uh, pay close attention to both vaccinating and maintaining immunity in your HIV-infected patients. So to uh, close this section about the individual, um, it's uh, prevention is just as essential in the HIV-infected population as the uninfected population, there is a modest effect on humoral responses as measured in the lab, boosting is essential. Treatment, uh, people with HIV are more likely to get into trouble, uh, moderately so, Uh, And therapeutic intervention should be similar uh, in the two populations. Uh, Realizing that people with HIV infection uh, have uh, different levels of immunodeficiency and lower thresholds should be uh, considered when one thinks about um, therapeutic interventions to prevent hospitalizations and death with monoclonal antibodies and as the uh, oral uh, agents roll out, uh, likely there as well. Now let's turn to society uh, and then Make a couple of points. These are data from China from a paper published last month. Uh, just to make the point that uh, the whole world saw a shutdown of uh, social interactions uh, in response to the COVID outbreak. Uh, China was particularly effective in closing things down, and what that's led to is less opportunity for other pathogens to pass or, uh, to be passed around. These are data from that Chinese experience, just showing you the number of respiratory diseases reported uh, in China during the uh, during 2020, and you can see that. Uh, Everything uh, from uh, mumps to uh, flu uh, was heavily affected uh, during the periods of the biggest shutdown. They began to rise when uh, things were opened up and then as things shut down again, same uh, uh, experience. Tuberculosis was not as heavily affected perhaps because uh, uh, people with TB uh, also include people who are reactivating. Uh, It's important to emphasize that with the healthcare system less accessible, These case rates may not completely reflect what's going on in the population because you have to be uh, surveilled to be counted, but it does make the point that with less social interaction, uh, respiratory viruses and uh, other viruses in this case, uh, and and pathogens in this place, even even syphilis uh, and GC in China, uh, we're seeing less frequently with less social interaction. What the rebound is gonna be as these viruses come back, as we begin to to uh, interact uh, is going to be something we have to pay attention to uh, and think about the time out our immune system has had from uh, influenza, respiratory syncytial virus, metanepovirus, uh, and realize that uh, as we unmask and interact, um, we may have a rebound in morbidity and mortality, as have been seen in some places like Australia with a couple of these diseases. Now, what about the impact of the social disruption caused by uh, HIV, uh, by COVID and the HIV infected population? This is a very nice study done in the Africa Coast cohort by the Walter Reed group that was published in uh, CID uh, earlier this year. Uh, and what you can see is that in their cohort, which is followed very closely, they were able to maintain very good ART adherence. And in fact, uh, as uh, they moved from the early phase to the late phase of COVID, uh, viral suppression was extremely good even though visit adherence uh, was, um, was impacted. So in the midst of substantial disruption, uh, one can continue to maintain good AIDS care. They noticed that uh, particularly in the early phases of this, uh, that uh, there were uh, there was food insecurity. And that's one of the things that continues to be a problem in resource-limited settings. The secondary effects of COVID uh, are, are substantial. Uh, this is a nice study from the WHO that looked at uh, across a large number of countries, what kinds of things happened to the healthcare system. And just as in the US, uh, the healthcare system was uh, impacted by insufficient staff. Uh, There was a lot of concern about coming to the hospital. Uh, People who had conditions that would normally come in a steady stream didn't come because they were afraid to come or the clinics were canceled. Uh, Financial difficulties were a problem for people in terms of getting healthcare. Some people couldn't even travel. So the healthcare system was very heavily impacted across the board uh, in terms of um, of the um, uh, COVID uh, epidemic and it'll be some time before much of this uh, resets. Uh, We in the uh, West were uh, very lucky in terms of having access to telehealth and other uh, activities. This just shows uh, how much uh, telehealth was uh, uh, introduced uh, in uh, the uh, western, um, in the resourced countries, uh, compared to places where things are more limited. Uh, And this has been one of the things that has uh, certainly helped our HIV infected population in the U.S. continue to get the kind of care that we'd like to see them receive. So I'll close now and just say that uh, uh, COVID's had a substantial impact on uh, people living with HIV around the world, and indeed on all of us, um, it doesn't increase the risk of becoming infected, but those who do get infected uh, have a higher morbidity mortality uh, from uh, COVID than those who are not the HIV-infected population. Uh, and things that drive morbidity mortality in the non-infected HIV-infected population do in the uh, HIV-infected population as well. Uh, the approach to using vaccines and therapeutics should be should mirror it, remembering that uh, there are uh, more people in the HIV-infected population who are immunocompromised. Vaccination is essential. Uh, the lockdowns and isolation uh, have uh, reduced non-COVID infections of multiple key types uh, and have led to uh, mental health uh, problems and, and uh, isolation, which I didn't get into today, but we shouldn't be overlooking. Uh, as people begin to uh, come back uh, into society. Uh, Healthcare systems were disrupted around the world, uh, particularly in places where they were on the edge to begin with. But uh, the global healthcare workforce itself has done a stupendous job in my view of of working in extremely difficult circumstances over the last year and a half. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, disadvantaged populations are disproportionately affected both by HIV and SARS-CoV-2. Um, health equity remains an essential goal for all of us. And as a uh, prelude to the next talk, I wanna also uh, recommend you a very nice um, uh, editorial in CID written by Raj Gandhi uh, and his uh, colleague, Virginia Triant uh, that talks about the intersection between these two uh, pandemics. Thanks very much. And I uh, have enjoyed very much being with you today and look forward to spending the rest of the time. Thanks. Uh,
0: Back to Monica. Great, thank you so much. Um, That was uh, uh, a phenomenal overview of really these colliding epidemics of HIV and COVID. Um, And we have a couple of questions coming in. Um, One is that you went over that really um, and, and, and showed us the uh, review article that comorbidities are higher in people living with HIV that can predispose to more severe COVID. What can you say specifically about the impact of smoking as a risk factor um, among people living with HIV with higher rates in that population?
1: That's a, a great question. And, and you know, smoking in COVID has been also something that's been all over the map. There was even one study that showed that smoking protected you now uh, from from COVID, and I kind of cynically thought that uh, it may just be because uh, people smoke, hack and carry on may just be missing coming in for mild COVID, not getting diagnosed. Uh, I think people who have had enough um, tobacco use to have lung damage and COPD, there's good evidence they get into trouble. Uh, Whether people who have smoked and don't have um, clear evidence of Lung damage uh, have more difficulty. uh, I think is a lot harder to know. Uh, I would not endorse smoking to find out, uh, but um, the evidence about smoking per se is still not really as strong as it might be. Great, thank you. And
0: then, um, why do you postulate that the deaths, you know, sort of per capita, um, have been lower from COVID nineteen in Africa's than in the U.S.
1: the Part of it I think is, uh, is ascertainment um, in uh, uh, resource settings. Uh, most people who get severely ill get to the hospital uh, and most people who become severely ill in the hospital have a diagnosis or two attached to them. And uh, in a lot of resource limited settings, hospitals were overwhelmed and turned people away. People died at home, uh, may not have been recorded uh, and, uh, and I think um, that really, uh, it's, it's very hard to know at a population level, um, what the real death rate is. Uh, the other thing that uh, I think is, is really critical is that COVID had a lot of and still is having a lot of secondary uh, impacts on our healthcare system, uh, people who have other conditions uh, that um, Need healthcare are not getting it, and some of them are dying from it. A colleague of mine had a close family member uh, in his mid 40s uh, who was in the, unfortunately, in the middle of a big COVID-related surge in one of our states where uh, vaccination is not emphasized. He had a color uh, had a ERCP and died in uh, two academic hospitals because he couldn't get the care he needed because of the COVID surge. And so uh, even here, um, people are dying from non-COVID-related conditions because we're letting our hospitals and our healthcare systems get overwhelmed, uh, which is a crime uh, with the vaccines now being available. In uh, resource-limited settings, this is even more of a case. uh, And I think that uh, the COVID-related deaths both directly and uh, indirectly from uh, missed healthcare opportunities, food insecurity, and other things uh, still haven't been tabulated.
0: And I think that's a great point and it also could be um, different comorbidities um, in populations like obesity um, and other COPD and cardiovascular disease and just differing comorbidities that predispose to severe COVID. Um, Is there any population data um, uh, on the potential effect of HIV protease inhibitors against SARS-CoV-2 infection, with the knowledge that a SARS-CoV-2 protease inhibitor (laughs) was just data was just released for this morning from Pfizer about uh, specifically targeting SARS-CoV-2, but um, HIV PIs on SARS-CoV-2.
1: There were some early data from Spain that I found hard to interpret. Uh, Again, channeling bias and other things playing a role in it. the HIV protease inhibitors per se uh, don't um, have anti-coronavirus activity at levels one achieves in vivo. And clinically, there have been some studies that have looked at um, uh, ritonavir and, um, uh, and other uh, primarily ritonavir uh, in its activity in SARS-CoV-2 and MERS. And um, even those studies showed um, were interpreted as showing perhaps some impact, but they were small, and I think there was enough wiggle room in terms of how they were done to fund it because other things were given some uh, concurrently it's very hard to interpret them. Uh, So uh, I I think that um, uh, people who are on HIV and protease inhibitors should certainly uh, stay on them if they're working but they shouldn't count on uh, them protecting them from COVID and uh, skip vaccination testing and other things that we want all the rest of us to do uh, in the in the COVID days. The COVID um, uh, the Protease inhibitor data from uh, that we heard about this morning is really exciting, and it's uh, very worth as a teaser, staying on until after the news uh, for uh, Raj's talk.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting because that protease inhibitor is boosted with ritonavir okay. um, in the same way that we're so used to with our HIV. I,
1: I actually don't think any Abbott drug is not boosted with ritonavir, is it?
0: <laughs> That's it. yeah, very good point. Uh, at one point, we were very reliant. Um, so. Uh we've, um, one um, of the attendees, Dr. Uman said, we've had a few patients come in post COVID with depressed CD4 counts. And if you see that after an acute COVID illness, have you um, thought about like resuming prophylaxis, for example, with CD4 counts less than 200? Um, and how long do you wait before repeating the CD4? because um, of these post-COVID effects?
1: Well, well, there are a couple of things that can take it out. One is COVID itself, with lymphopenia from that. Another thing is a lot of people get um, corticosteroids as part of their COVID management. And uh, there aren't many things that are as effective as clear- in clearing out CD4 cells as dexamethasone. Uh, so, um, and there have been uh, patients who have been dexamethasone asked for uh, COVID who've developed pneumocystis and other uh, HIV related complications. So I, I think it's very reasonable in those patients, if you're worried about them, to uh, reinstitute um, prophylaxis for uh, PJP uh, in the context of their low CD4 cell counts. I don't know what the, what the trajectory of recovery is uh, because I, I haven't seen cohorts followed um, with repetitive, systematic uh, CD4 cell counts to look at the kinetics uh, so I would just take a functional approach and probably uh, check every month or so, uh, and uh, in in your patients and adjust your um, uh, prophylaxis report uh, accordingly.
0: Yeah, that really makes sense, and um, it was interesting your discussion of the um, post COVID uh, HIV vaccination, COVID vaccination among people living with HIV, because we. Did a separate analysis that showed the same findings of reduced antibiotics um, but actually look, ended up looking at T cells and um, T cell responses to the COVID-19 vaccines were intact if you had a high c 4 count. Um, okay, that is actually any other questions or comments from um, our participants?
1: I see a question in the chat box from Dr. Benson who wants to ask a question. Uh, I don't think she should, but go ahead and let her do it. (laughs) Um, Okay, Okay, somebody
2: needs to unmute me. Um, So thank you for uh, allowing me to ask a (laughs) question. I see. I was just wondering if, in your uh, survey of all of the recent data from, Uh, resource limiting settings. I've seen some data in the tuberculosis literature that people with HIV co-infection have worse TB and COVID when those two things occur together, and that there may be an interaction pathogenetically between COVID and mycobacteria, or it may just be that both are respiratory infections that affect disease. And I'm wondering if you uh, had you know, there's a, a big surveillance study from South Africa that showed that the mortality rate for people with HIV and TB during the COVID pandemic was actually higher than in the non-COVID population. So I'm wondering if you found any more data related pathogenesis in the, to the pathogenesis of COVID and TB as a co-infection.
1: Not directly. I, I have to say, I think, uh, and you know more th- this more than me. I, I think people underestimate the um, long-term impact of TV uh, on on the lung, uh, and even in people who have been treated and recover. Uh, I mean, we're used to thinking about: I had pneumococcal pneumonia, got treated, and got better, and, and not worrying about longer-term impacts. And uh, I think a combination of probably fibrosis, immune activation, immune modulation. Uh, Uh, that lasts much longer uh, and is much more persistent than people who have uh, or who have had TB. Uh, And COVID uh, uh, layered on top of that uh, certainly uh, can set things off in the wrong direction. Um, Could COVID uh, with its own immune dysregulation uh, essentially uh, reactivate TB or enable TB uh, to, uh, to pick back up in people who were Uh, reasonably controlled before COVID came along? uh, Absolutely. And if you uh, start giving people who are having um, respiratory distress dexamethasone, um, TB, I'm sure be quite happy with that. So I think there are a lot of things that relate to both the pulmonary um, physiology, uh, pulmonary um, uh, uh, immune responsiveness, and um, Covid-related therapeutics that could certainly cause uh, people with TB to have a worse outcome than people without. That's a great I was,
2: question. I was thinking uh, in the context of the suppression of interferon axis by Covid and SARS-CoV-2, and that's a particularly important um, axis in the pathogenesis of tuberculosis. And so that may be one way that they can interact in a bad way.
1: That's a very good point. Uh, COVID is one of the things that Dr. Benson's uh, uh, alluding to is that um, one of the tricks of SARS-CoV-2 over SARS-CoV is it very uh, actively turns off the innate immune response, in particular the interferon axis uh, in the first couple of days of infection, which is how it replicates to such high levels and why it is so highly transmissible before people are symptomatic. The symptoms people get are when their innate immune response catches up, they begin to become febrile and feel the inflammation. Uh, And uh, anything that turns off that axis or prevents the host from being able to activate that axis um, is going to make, uh, is going to give COVID a head start on the adaptive immune response. So I think that's a, a very good way to think about it.
0: And um, as you indicated, there's so much impact on other diseases, it's not just, uh, th- there's a general increase in TB, um, uh, you know, mortality uh, for the first time in a decade, uh, I've just reported over the last couple of months. Um, so, yeah, it's been a really difficult time for our fields of HIV, malaria, tuberculosis, all those outcomes. Um Okay, well, thank you so much. And um, I actually will turn it over to you, Chip, to introduce uh, Dr. Raj Gandhi.